Hi, I'm Bobby Temps. If you've been keeping up with the No Really I'm Fine podcast, you will have heard me interviewed on Friday. We're back so soon because we just really wanted to share something we've been working on, which is a special episode called Hope from the Frontline, where we shine a light on key workers that are going to work so that we can stay safe during the pandemic. And I'm here with Gemma. I almost called you Emma for a second. I'm sorry. And I'm here with Gemma to introduce this very special episode with me. Yeah, hi Bobby. It's uh, really exciting to share these stories of these amazing people with you as well. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like we should touch a little bit on the theme of Mental Health Awareness Week. I know you did some really great episodes. I I know I'm slightly biased, but I think they were great episodes on, uh, on kindness for last week. But I wanted to touch on the theme of kindness again, because I think it comes through so much in these clips as something so universal with key workers that you'll hear them talk about why they're doing their job. They talk about the risks to them. They talk about the risks to their family. But ultimately, they keep working and they keep looking after people. I think that's incredible. And I think so much of that comes back to kindness. Yeah, and kind of should be in people's minds all the time. It doesn't have to just last one week just because it's the theme of Mental Health Awareness Week, you know. And these people are showing that, aren't they, that they're kind all the time. Yeah, it's not easy. We all know it. And it's a weird thing for us as well as mental health podcasters because we have things like Mental Health Awareness Week where this episode originally went out on our show. And it can feel a bit strange because every week is kind of Mental Health Awareness Week for us. And so then you find yourself thinking, okay, now I have to sort of hype it up. But how do you do that if you've thought it was important the whole time? Mm, Yeah, definitely. And so one thing I'm interested to hear from you is how you found the renewed appreciation for key workers and what you've seen of that. Yeah, well, my dad's a support worker and my mum, she's currently going through chemo and she has pancreatic cancer. So... I've always had an appreciation of the NHS, Clatterbridge Cancer Centre, who are looking after my mum at the moment, and key workers. So for me, it was very humbling, especially when the first clap for carers came out um, and some of my closest friends are nurses on the front line. And I mean, at first I was annoyed because I felt like it took a tragedy for people to pay attention to these types of people, sort of recognise the work that they do. But then... I quickly got over that sort of anger and frustration and realised, you know, this is a really key time to sort of celebrate those people and bring them into the light and, you know, why not give them that recognition that they deserve. Right, absolutely. And I understand that frustration. I've been feeling a bit of it around the contrast between how wonderful the public's reaction has been and at times the government failing to, to meet the same measure, I would say. Absolutely, the clapping for carers and the support is so valuable. But my hope overall is that that gets brought forward out of this pandemic when things do start to get to some kind of new normal and that the NHS can be better resourced and people do get continued appreciation and all the support that they give us. You know, it's maybe time that they get some more of that support in return. Yeah, there should be like an NHS station there and for that to continue in some way yeah I'd not even thought of that that's such a great idea and actually feels entirely appropriate given how much the conversation has been sort of warlike you know referring to people as heroes and one of our guests actually mentions that she's a nurse and she said initially she was hearing all of this and she was so fearful of the pandemic and thinking to herself I don't want to be a hero you know I didn't sign up for this and it's true When joining the NHS, you never expect to be put at this level of risk. And you certainly don't expect to be put into what's being described as the front line without the proper protection. You wouldn't send a soldier off without their helmet. And so I'm so glad and grateful that the PPE is finally reaching. Mm. I feel like there's still lots of work to be done around it, though. I mean, not to be negative, but as mentioned before, my dad's a support worker. His job entails going into people's houses and looking after them in the home and he's had to rely on one of his colleagues making masks for them because he works for an independent company. So I feel like still there is a lot of companies out there who aren't getting PPE. Um, 
and I'm just so thankful that my dad has friends and colleagues around him who are helping and you know making these masks because for a while I was so anxious about my dad going to work I was just terrified that you know he's going to come home and, and bring coronavirus to mum and mum's so vulnerable and it was such a worrying time but when they said you know about PP for everyone else I was obviously relieved and then when my dad finally told told me that you know those masks were being made I was just just so thankful really and it's mm. a completely understandable fear and I do worry that that'll be the next big challenge that we are gradually getting a handle on the pandemic and I do worry whether the next pandemic essentially although it wouldn't be called a pandemic will be the mental health crisis that could follow this with all the lockdown factors with the financial influences with absolutely how much anxiety people are feeling right now and so you know I just feel lucky that we live in a country where there are so many incredible key workers um, people like your dad there to look after us even when it's their own life on the line um mm. You know, it's, it's hard to even find the words for. It's so impressive and it's so humbling. I think as well, weirdly, sometimes I don't look at my dad in that way. A lot of people have said to me, oh, he does do such a great job. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's just his job. But <laughs> in a way, this pandemic has sort of made me appreciate his job more. I felt the same. Both of my parents are medical and I have a similar thing where it can be quite weird that to me they're just my parents. That's their identity in my eyes. And yet every so often I'm around them and their work colleagues and they're quite senior and so many people look up to them and I'm just there like taking the mick out of them because <laughs> they're, you know, they're just my family. But no, it has been incredible. And, you know, my mum told me the first time there was the clap for carers on her street. You know, she happened to be at home that day and was in tears from it. She said, I've never known this level of appreciation. You know, we just go in and we do our job and that's our duty. She hardly had words for how moved she was. So, Shall yeah. we hear from some of these amazing people on the front line? Yes, <laughs> as, as wonderful as our folks are. <laughs> so we've got six great key workers talking to us today from settings including medical, care from home, supermarkets and the charity sector, including Emma Carrington, a previous guest of yours. Yeah, who works for Rethink and it was interesting about how their call system has changed and the way they help. You also speak to doctors and nurses on the front line as well, don't you? Yes. It was really heartwarming to hear, you know, even with all the challenges they faced, their focus has so much remained on their patients and on their colleagues. And as someone not of the medical world, that can even be a little bit difficult for me to wrap my head around. You know, how much they're having to live through right now, and yet still their focus is so much on other people, is incredible and is very much how our NHS works and why we're so proud of it. And then right at the very end, we've got a special poem from one of those nurses, which was originally for the 70th birthday of the NHS and has now been adapted for the current situation and is really moving and a lovely way to hopefully round out the episode. And I think poems sound amazing on podcasts. Sure. So thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure and we'll get straight into Hope from the Frontline. So first off is the secret psychiatrist, one of our all-time favourite guests, who has only recently been on one of our bonus lockdown interviews sharing her advice for navigating your mental health during this pandemic and all the massive changes in our lives. In this clip, you'll hear her talk about how her work and her life has changed, but one thing that hasn't is how patients always come first. And even with the challenges she'll outline, they're keeping patients safe, they're keeping their services open. And I find her message really empowering around self-reflection and the little things we can all do to keep ourselves healthy and safe during this time. Hi, I'm the secret psychiatrist, otherwise known as Dr. Pavinder Shergal. I'm a doctor that works in mental health in West London. I primarily work with 
CAM, so children and adolescents, but I also had the option to work in A&E, the geriatric wards, forensic wards, so those with a criminal background, acute wards and emergency wards as well. Since COVID-19, I think the world has completely changed, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I'm still going in. I've been lucky that I have been you know, well enough to do my job. And I love it. Despite these political issues with PPE, we don't have any at the moment. And the little that we do have in psychiatry, it's not effective PPE, essentially. So work has completely changed for me. We are trying to follow government policy similar to the GPs. Lots of people are working from home. That might be because they're unable to get in because of public transport, because they're at risk themselves. Also, if they need to protect loved ones that they're living with. So, and trying to do their consultation and reviews over the phone. Doctors are rated to come into work. So at the moment, I'm scheduled to come in once a week and the rest of the time to do my consultations at home. That's a bit of a strange feeling, I think, as a doctor in psychiatry to do reviews on the phone because 80% of it really is me looking at the patient, you know, watching how they react to me, the way they speak, their eye contact, their body language, their facial expressions, and also how they react to my body language as well. So it's very difficult to get that on a phone and for me to effectively and safely do my assessments and also medication reviews. None of us know medical legally where we stand about changing medications on a phone without seeing a patient. But Patients always come first, no matter what's happening. Despite COVID-19, that will never change. If we are concerned, if I'm ever concerned about someone's mental illness acutely, I will do a home visit. I will invite them in to see me in person and I won't take that risk because end of the day, patients come first and I will always do that as we all will. I know people are really stressed in this time and it's really hard for some people to self-isolate and you might be self-isolating alone or with people that can trigger your mental illness or make you feel worse. Or it might be the complete opposite and you're really thriving in this time. But whatever it is, I really want everyone to know that we are here. The lines are not stopping. We are not forgetting about any of our patients. Even if you need to be referred, we will make that time. So please never let what's happening right now in the world stop that. Your health comes first. Always remember that. And there are lots of things you can do at home. People don't realise how amazing it is just to step outside and have the cold breeze on your face. It can do so much for you. Little things like that, having a little walk by yourself, listening to music, calling a friend, you know, FaceTiming a friend. These things can go so far. You don't have to physically be somewhere and we're all in it together, which in a way I think is such a beautiful thing. The world is in this together and that's so lovely in a way. So you're not alone. Everyone's there as well. If you have pets, I love pets. I think they make great therapy, you know, have fun with them painting, reading a book, really have this time for yourself and to reflect because I don't think we're ever going to get this time again in life. So look at it in the positive way of what it could be. But again, if you need help, we are here. So don't worry about us. Don't worry about if we don't have PPE or if we're under stress. We're completely, honestly, we have this. This is what we're trained for. This is why we became doctors. We're here to help you. So never stop that. And I hope everyone does really well. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Next up is Isabel Blake, who is a heart failure nurse and mum of two. Her work usually takes place in the homes of her patients, and so therefore she is at increased risk. She doesn't have the same options of keeping the environment sterile that a lot of her hospital colleagues would, which can be really challenging. And one of the things I found most moving speaking to her, how that creates fear for her family. And so trying to navigate doing the work she loves whilst also balancing the fear and the anxiety around bringing this disease home was really moving to her. My name is Isabel Blake and I'm a community heart failure nurse specialist. My job entails seeing people with heart failure and what I do is visit them at home, provide patient education, hospital avoidance, we run clinics, basically just there to make sure the patients have a a good journey in their heart failure status. How has the pandemic affected me at work? It's been such a journey. It's been it's been scary. It's been challenging. It's been it's been worrying. It's been adapting to change. It's learning to take things differently, like changing routine. 
I think initially at work, when we first found out about the pandemic, it was everyone was sort of like, oh my God, this is so scary. What are we doing? It was probably the first time in 13 years. So I thought to myself, I can't do this. I can't do it. I thought, do you know what? I'll, I'll do anything. I don't want to be a nurse. I don't want to be a hero. I don't want to be on the front line. It's all very scary. Yeah, very scary. And how did you find that affecting your personal life beyond work? Do you know what? So at home, I've got two young boys. So obviously the, the main worry, I think, for me is bringing it home to my boys, bringing it home to my family. My mum's got dementia and I have to see her quite regularly. So I'm worried. Am, am I my carrier? Have I got it? Am I going to bring it home to these these innocent people that don't have a choice. Do you know what I mean? It's either, do I move out? They gave us the option to go and live in a hotel. If you want to avoid, obviously, contaminating your family. That's one of the things that made me think, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I've got my children at home that don't have a choice in what mummy does, but they're so open to anything that I bring home to them. And that's the last thing that I'd want to do. So it's, it's been hard. But yeah, you know, kids are amazing and they're resilient, aren't they? And they just kind of get on with it. And I imagine there's something reassuring in that because kids have a certain like almost fixed status that they're always just kind of doing their own thing. So potentially with everything else that's changed in your life, they still bring some normalisation. My nine-year-old, he said to me one of the days, he said, Mum, I I don't want you to go to work. He said, what if something happens? Because you're going to die. And I just thought, oh, Mum's not going to die. Mum's strong and Mum's looking after people and Mum's making sure people are... You know, and he kind of just thought about it for a second and then shrugged his shoulders and off he went. And I thought, God, if anything <laughs> did happen to me, I've just kind of told this little boy that mommy's going to be fine, nothing's going to happen. It's just awful to have to think that it's a reality. And the fact that he's thought about that, I, I don't know how much he's thought about it on his own or with his little brother, but just the fact that he said it to me, I was like, oh, it, it really took me. Yeah, I can imagine. And it just shows that this reaches everyone. You know, you don't absolutely. Think... You don't think, but well, I think you kind of think it's just surface with them. You don't actually think about how it's really affecting them inside. And the fact, like I said, the fact that he said that to him, I just thought, God, is he is he worrying at night time if I'm not coming home? Is he sat at home and I'm at work thinking, Oh my God, what's Mum doing? Is she coming home? So it's that's one of the hardest parts of it, I think, for me. And in terms of your safety and trying to keep them safe, have you been able to get the PPE you need? So the PPE we have now up to date is I think the most we're going to have so we have gloves and aprons um, surgical masks and visors or goggles so that is what we wear into any patient whether they're positive non-positive low risk high risk that's what we wear that's for their protection as, as well as ours really but when we were going out first and we had like just the mask and we were told that that mask has got to last all day Whereas now we've got masks that we can change in between patients. But, you know, I'd get home, well, I still do, get home from work, everything comes off, straight in the washing machine, I'm upstairs, straight in the shower, wash before I'll even hug the kids. You know, like my, they'll come running up to me to the door and I can't hug them. Or I don't want to, but I don't want to touch them until I've been upstairs, stripped and had a shower. So, yeah, but, you know, any amount of PPE wouldn't change that, I don't think. And in terms of your concerns of safety for you and your family, what is it that's kept you going? Do you know what? It's because I, I absolutely, I love being a nurse. <laughs> I just saw Dad's face and like, oh. Um, but yeah, it's what I signed up for. And I love my job and I love looking after people. I love making sure they're okay. It's just kind of that get on with it and carry on culture, I think, that's kept me going. It's, it's about having a good team at work. Everyone I work with is brilliant and we're all close anyway but this has all really made us come together and just we can get through it you feel like you can get through anything if you've got a good team behind you so so yeah but it's, it's been tough yeah I can certainly imagine that and how are your patients responding to you still still coming around and still being there for them all the patients that we go to see are actually really needed so most of them are very grateful I think the first visit that we did in in full PPE and they were like, oh, you know, should you be coming in? And, you know, you could be passing it on. I said, I'm in the same boat. I said, I've got two young children at home. I've got a mum that's vulnerable. I could be passing it on to them. You could be giving it to me. Anyone can have it. Anyone can pass it to anyone. Just talking to people and making them understand that we need to be there. And one thing that's been quite universal with the healthcare professionals I've spoken to is 
that reiterating of we are doing everything we can to keep you safe. Yeah, our job keeping you out of hospital is so important. And I'm so delighted that services like yours are still continuing and people are still getting the support out in the community when they need it at a time when there's so much focus on hospitals. But there are, at the same time, brilliant nurses like yourself all over the country in all kinds of settings. That's it. You don't want to take anything away from the service that the hospital provides. It's vital. It's critical. Like you say, on the other hand, there are community nurses, there are care workers absolutely all doing their damnedest to keep people out of hospital and, and provide a good service at home. Well, I think it's brilliant and I'm so glad that you're there doing what you do. So thank you. Thank you. I'm proud, kind of, just think to myself, it's about you're only human. You're allowed to be scared. You're allowed to be worried. You're allowed to have all of those feelings. But, you know, I just, I just kind of push myself to, to go out and just treat it as like a normal day and get through it. And just thankful that every day I do get through it and proud to be a nurse and proud to, to be there for the NHS. Next up is another previous guest and favourite of ours, Emma Carrington, who runs an essential service for supporting mental health. So right now, what she does has been very much pushed to the forefront, because when you're struggling to access other services, charities like Rethink Mental Illness get a massive influx in people asking for help. She also shares how, even with the challenges of her team working from home, they're still doing everything they can to support people. And like much of what we're discussing today, if you do want to learn more about Rethink Mental Illness, the details are in the episode description. Hi, my name is Emma Carrington. I work for Rethink Mental Illness. We provide lots of services all across the country. But we have one national um, service called the Advice and Information Service that provides practical advice and information on mental health issues to anyone who is affected by mental illness, whether that's lived experience, caring for someone, friend, family, employers, all sorts of things. And we do that by email, phone, web chat and letter. So that's what I do. Great. And how have you found the service has been impacted by the pandemic and the lockdown? I mean, just kind of physically to start off with, we're a very small team and we work in a a very small office in, in Birmingham all used to kind of working in the same building and now we all are having to work from home. I'm having to kind of get used to manage people remotely. I so take my hat off to people that do that because it's not as easy as you think it's going to be. So I personally am kind of dealing with that. I think for the staff, it's things like, and these are the kind of things I worry about for them, you know, that they're kind of answering calls from people that can be in some distress who can be quite angry with the situations that they're in. And rather than being in an environment where we can all rally around them and make sure they're okay after a call, they're sitting in a room on their own and having to kind of deal with that. So that can be quite difficult for the team. And we're seeing a lot of change to the kind of calls that we're getting and the emails and things. So we're seeing a lot more people that are in distress and needing emotional support That's not something that we do, but we do signpost to places like the Samaritans and Sane Line, more so than normal. But also people who are kind of struggling to get the services that they need. My team will actually kind of talk to people about what their rights are, how COVID-19 might have changed those rights or whether those rights are still there. And you just have to kind of fight for them and we can give them practical advice on how to go about doing that. And with all these challenges, I find you personally really inspirational, but also the work you and your team do. Would you mind sharing what it is that keeps you going with all these challenges of supporting people, even when it's much more difficult to do so? Hmm. I think that, you know, Rethink as a whole, we care very much about, you know, mental health, obviously. We started out as a charity called the National Schizophrenia Fellowship, I'm so proud of this story. It was a guy called John Pringle. He'd got a family member with schizophrenia and he was just shocked at how difficult it was to access services and things. And from that one letter, more people got in contact and our charity came out of that, which is just such an inspiring story, I think, that, you know, one person's letter can now lead to a national mental health charity being in place. I just absolutely love that. So, you know, we want to make sure that people with severe mental illnesses do get their voices heard. And I think that all of us on the team, because we all have different reasons for doing what we do. Myself, 
I feel very passionate about carers of people with mental illness. I think sometimes they are kind of forgotten and they do an absolutely amazing job. And I just want to always kind of be there for them because they're usually the ones that are fighting on behalf of their loved one, trying to get them the help and support that they need. Um, So I'm really passionate about making sure that those people kind of get some support and know how to ask for what they need. Brilliant. I love that. We were also delighted to be joined by Adi Raja, who spoke to us after just completing a 24-hour shift. He works as a junior doctor in acute medicine and has actually returned to work after dealing with COVID-19 himself, something that I found incredibly impressive. But with all the changes happening, with all the fear and anxiety, and then him getting the condition himself, as soon as he was well enough, as soon as it was safe to do, he was straight back onto the front line. I think like all of our key workers, it's just so admirable and it really makes me proud of the services that are out there. I'm really such a lovely part of the medical community that it is so team focused. It's about supporting each other as well as, of course, the patients. So hi, my name is Adi Raja and I'm a frontline junior doctor. Currently, I work in the Princess Grace Hospital, which is a small independent hospital in central London. And I work in the Department of Acute Medicine, which is my main interest and specialty. But now, since coronavirus has hit, my role has completely changed. And we are now working very much in a surgical environment and providing the urgent operations that are needed for NHS patients. Right. And do you mind sharing what kind of operations those are? So we are one of the cancer surgical hubs for London. So we are treating the patients who unfortunately have been diagnosed with cancer and they require some sort of urgent operation to help remove the tumour for either relief of symptoms or curative treatment. Right. And so since the pandemic has started, a lot of these additional patients are being passed to yourselves whilst NHS services try to keep up with the COVID demand. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So we are trying to be one of the so-called clean hospitals. So we are trying to remain uh, coronavirus free. And so we're now completely under the umbrella of the NHS. So so we've essentially stopped all of our private services and we are taking on patients from various trusts across London. So we now have a flow of patients coming from all sides of London and we are providing operations for a variety of tumours done by surgeons from across, across Greater London. And yeah, so we're trying to just remain as one of the clean sites because obviously, you know, it's important for these patients who are, you know, immunosuppressed from their diseases to obviously not catch coronavirus. Of course, the odd positive patient pops up and then we then somehow have to manage that in terms of whether we proceed with the operation or unfortunately we have to turn them away and bring them back or think about transferring them to one of the other NHS trusts. I see. And so in terms of all these major changes, how's that impacted your work day to day? It's completely different now. So we were a a nice, small, little private hospital treating medical patients. And now we have suddenly turned into this big NHS centre. So it's very strange because, you know, I never would have imagined this would be occurring in this building, for example, because a lot of these private hospitals aren't built like NHS hospitals. Yeah, it's been a challenge. And When it all sort of kicked off, I actually contracted coronavirus myself and was off sick for a few weeks. And when I returned to work, a lot of the senior doctors and a lot of the managers were off sick. So I find myself, you know, figuring out the logistics of how we're going to bring the patients in, how we're going to set up a brand new ward, how we're going to train the doctors in a different way to now treat surgical patients. So major transformation. And we literally had to figure things out on the go and just create pathways in the matter of a couple of weeks. So, yeah, it's it's been interesting, but it's been quite a challenge. Wow, I can imagine. And do you mind me asking, in terms of you contracting COVID yourself, how that impacted you and maybe the people you live with? Yes. So just before the pandemic hit, I, I felt myself feeling a bit run down. And I honestly would have just thought it was just nothing major at all. But my hospital was offering tests at the time. So I thought I'd get a test and it came back positive. And my symptoms weren't too severe. I had like a sore throat, runny nose and a lot of fatigue. It was the fatigue that mainly stopped me from going back to work. 
but it didn't affect anyone. So I, I live alone in a flat. I was stuck on my own suffering with these symptoms. But eventually I, I got better and then got back to work. And I have to say, I think I was quite relieved when I got back to work. It was nice to actually go in and do something. I did feel very guilty, I think, for not being on the sort of front line. I felt sort of guilty for not being there with my colleagues and doing something. But I think once we got back to work and once we started sort of creating these NHS services, I certainly felt a lot more sane, I'd say. That's good to hear. And so now that you're back into work and it sounds like you're doing an incredible job coping with these really difficult changes, how are you finding you and your team are coping? I think we really struggled initially. There was a lot of uncertainty around job roles, around who was going to work where. We had some complex surgical patients who were going to come in and, you know, we're all working out of our comfort zone. So I think there was a lot of anxiety around our roles and responsibilities. And then, you know, then we had a call out for the Nightingale and we had a lot of volunteers for that, you know, because I think people felt like they wanted to go on the sort of so-called front line, although we are essentially on the front line. But I think now we've we've sort of gotten into the swing of things and we've got the right expertise, you know, on site and, and helping us. And, and we're doing some really good work. So it feels like a positive situation now. I think I think with uncertainty, you always sort of have a bit of anxiety. But I think ultimately now that we know we're doing great work and we're in the flow of things, we're sort of feeling pretty good about it. Brilliant. That's great to hear. All right, we'll wrap up there then. Thank you. Now our penultimate guest, Camilla, she is a good friend of mine. She's a fellow Time to Change champion and she works in a supermarket. In this clip, she shares the impact of panic buying and the anxiety that this caused, not only for people doing the panic buying, but also those working in the supermarket industry. Also, the changes to keep customers safe and overall how the public's attitude has changed towards her work, her industry and her colleagues. I was really delighted to share her experience working in what is such a key industry, but one that is so often overlooked. Hi, I'm Camilla. I work for a smaller supermarket chain. The other week we had about 5,000 people come to our store. The challenges that we faced in terms of people panic buying and interruptions in our supply chain, the difficulties in keeping people apart and safe while they're shopping. It has been really tricky, but we're getting through it. Our supply chain interruptions have been sort of worked out and our employers are generally looking after us pretty well in terms of sending down the PPE. It took a while but we're getting there. So stock is getting on the shelves and people's attitudes have changed slightly, <laughs> being appreciated a lot more now. We, we did have some difficulty with, you know, customers not understanding how the supply chain works and how, how difficult it is to get stuff on the shelves when we're trying to keep away from everybody and keep you all safe. But things are returning to normal a little bit better now. And thank you to all the people who stopped for a second and said, we appreciate you and you're doing a great job because it means an awful lot to us. Particularly the random acts of kindness that I've seen, you know, people sharing their baby milk or their toilet paper or anything like that. It just gives a feeling of hope and it's really good for us to see that human kindness to, you know, people who are elderly, people who work in the NHS, the clapping, the appreciation. It's really heartwarming for us to see behind the till and it's great to see people being good to each other and sticking to the rules, (laughs) because ultimately that's what's going to bring us through this. Yeah, very true. And are you finding the panic buying is sort of resolving itself at this point? Now that people can see that the shelves are pretty full, they're not feeling the need to grab two or three of everything. (laughs) I won't have to stop anybody buying 12 packets of rice anytime soon. I think people have, have been made aware things are slowly, but surely they will return back to normal. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Your little face looks Russians. And are you finding as the conversation continues, people are more understanding and respectful of the distancing and the limiting of number of people in stores? Yes, I find if anything, they're starting to police each other. <laughs> like, excuse me, would you go and stand over there? Like a little <laughs> <on the> floor. <laughs> We've had very clear social distancing measures put in place at our store. So we can see if people aren't sticking to it but I think people are more aware now of the fact that they're putting us at risk as well they're trying to stay away from us you know pay contactless and stand as far away as possible while they're being served I think things are changing the conversation has changed it's not just about panic now it's about protection and knowing that they're taking care of us as we're trying to take care of them 
And with all the understandable concern in your industry, not just from a stock point of view, but from obviously the health point of view, how have you managed anxiety around being in work and being around so many people that could have symptoms and not even know it? I think ultimately you have to put your faith in the PPE and the measures that have been sent down to you from head office that have been thought through very well. And I've been lucky in the sense that I can trust the people that I work for to think of me. I'm aware that that is not the case for everybody. So I'm trying to just stick to the rules and just stay grateful that I have a job where I can I can know what I'll be paid next month and I can feel comfortable that way. And to know that things are changing and people's attitudes are changing. And people are just much more grateful now. It makes it so much easier to do my job and keep that anxiety at bay. People are sticking to the procedures. And the more that they do that, the less time that this will go on for. No, that's so true. And do you feel a sense of pride in the role that you do now and being able to contribute in such a way that maybe at times people didn't appreciate in the past? I do. I think working in a supermarket is such an odd job. It's not terribly well thought of, but at times like this, with, as I said, the appreciation, you know, people have been like buying us flowers and writing us thank you cards. And it changes your perspective on who you are and it makes you feel like you're worth it, like you're worth being protected and being praised, like you provide a great service and an essential service. And I think I started to realise that about my job too. Yeah, you and your colleagues are doing such a brilliant thing and I'm so glad that There's people like you out there keeping an eye on us, keeping the stores tidy and stocked so that we can more safely live as normal lives as possible. Thank you. It's great to be able to talk things through and remind people that we are getting there and getting what people need as safely as possible so we can continue to just provide a great service for people as we've always done, as we always will do. Thanks, Bobby. (laughs) Thank you. Last up, we were delighted to be joined by Pierce Harrison-Reed, who's an A&E nurse and shared what he is doing to reassure patients and build rapport, even with the limitations PPE can create for communication. He also talks stigma in the NHS. He's also an incredible poet who updated a piece he did for the NHS's 70th birthday. He's an incredibly articulate guest, and it was lovely that even with the distancing and us having to interview our guests over digital means at the moment, then none of his passion was lost. And you'll hear that both in the following clip and also his reading of the poem, which will close out today's special episode. So with that all said, here's Piers and thank you to him and all our incredible frontline workers for keeping us all safe, well fed and as mentally healthy as would be possible right now. So I'm Piers Harrison-Reed. I'm an A&E nurse. I've been working in A&E for the past four years. So I've been in there a lot since coronavirus started. It's kind of affected my role quite gradually, really. I think I was one of the people who started being aware of it, potentially affecting the way that we organized A&E quite early on. And I, I felt like I was a bit more open-eyed about it than some of my colleagues who were trying to pretend it wouldn't affect us. But gradually, despite what people expected, it's, it's taken on more and more of a role within our day-to-day lives. And we've had to organize our daily shifts, but also the physical space we operate in quite differently to when we started. And with all these changes at work, how has that affected home and, and your own health potentially? I think I'm in a very privileged position from a mental health perspective. I've definitely felt that my mental health has been worse uh, since COVID started, but I have dealt with previous mental health crises, both of my own and people that I was very close to when I was quite young. Um, So I feel like I'm relatively resilient mentally now. And that's partly been because of my writing and my creative expression. I feel like I'm able to process quite complex emotions now much better than I was able to when I was young. So I think with all this stuff, because it's such a, a macro thing, it's such a big change for so many people, I think it's not something which I take personally, which I think is really important. And I think the changes that I've had to make in my personal life have been relatively small in comparison to other people's. So realistically, I'm just trying to make sure that I I do all the 
real basic things that we know are good for us mentally, you know, eating well, going out and exercising, really focusing on spending time with my friends, even if it's through a screen. And both me and my girlfriend, because we, we work in the, the same place and we have a good understanding of the amount of stress we take on daily, I think we were able to give each other enough space to process, but also give each other a, a way of feeding back and venting, which is really important after a really long shift. So I think I haven't had to change that much in order to deal with the complexity of the coronavirus crisis personally. It's just all been in my professional life, to be honest. It's been continuing that with hopefully good habits that I've already got into. So Right. Well, it sounds like you're really making the most of it not changing as much at home, given how drastically everything's changing at work. For sure, for sure. And I, I think I'm, I've been very lucky in that. I, I, I think partly I... I uh, I used to do a lot of sport, um, team sports when I was able to. So I think that's the big thing which has changed as well as not being able to perform as much. But because so much of our health and fitness can be done, you know, in the home, doing exercise or going out for independent runs, um, and so much creative expression can be done, especially from a poetic point of view, it doesn't have to be done in a group. It doesn't have to be done in front of people. The way you process your emotions is still a very personal thing. So it's, I've just been lucky in the things that which I've chosen to, to spend my time doing through my life just so happened to, to concord quite well with coronavirus. So I know a lot of my a lot of my friends in the creative sphere have really struggled because they a lot of their creation and performance is so interwoven in how they see themselves. Um, so it's it's been really tough for people who have creative expression is their primary source of income, but also their primary, you know, use of the time. So, Right. Yeah. You certainly have many advantages in your type of creativity, but I, I don't know if I'd say lucky maybe because you, yeah. you've clearly been proactive with your mental health. Yeah, for sure. But I, I think I've, I've learned over the years that I think you do have to be quite proactive with the way you kind of see yourself and the way you process your emotions. I, I grew up in a place in Suffolk, which was relatively sleepy. And I had a big group of male friends who were all associated by our mutual love for heavy metal music, essentially. And I think inside of that culture, there is a lot of like hypermachismo and a lot of people who don't really process their emotions very well. And we go through life within those groups, sometimes, you know, associating very strongly with that one thing, but not necessarily allowing ourselves to grow and and really um, pick apart the things which make us who we are. And so I, I think that allows a certain amount of laziness, which then can kind of mutate into some quite negative emotions moving forwards. And I think that I was quite lucky to come at it from a, a kind of an outside perspective because I moved down from, from Sheffield when I was quite young and feel like I could always hold myself to account if I felt like I was processing things in a negative way. Um, and I know a few of my friends are, are still struggling with processing emotions in a way which isn't kind of still informed by that hypermachismo background. And sometimes which is quite negative but in a way we don't you don't see how negative it is until you're already quite far down the toxic kind of pathway that you're on yeah that is a really universal struggle and one that i think when you've gone through your own difficulties you're so much more tuned in with others how are you finding your colleagues are coping i think it's it's difficult to know other people's struggles from the outside and i don't think that inside of healthcare even though you'd expect a lot of people would be very happy to share because we see stressful things day in, day out. I think there is still an issue within healthcare that we don't want to burden other people we work with with our personal troubles, and we don't necessarily want to become a patient. So I think some people do have a tendency to let it, let the stress levels get really bad before they seek help. And for, also for fear of, fear of other people judging them, it still happens in the health service. I think people are still afraid that by acknowledging that they feel mentally unwell or mentally unstable, then other people we work with might think of them as lesser, even if we've got quite a lot of experience dealing with people who have mental health crises from a caregiver perspective. I think we still sometimes don't expect people will be understanding. So I think there's there's a lot of people who probably are struggling, but don't share that much, unfortunately. Right. And that's the difficulty, isn't it? That it's such a personal journey that I'm sure mm. your colleagues would never refer to a patient as being a burden for their mental yeah, health. Yeah. But they would project that on themselves, potentially. For sure. And in terms of being proactive, then more as a team in a workplace, how are you finding people supporting each other? I certainly think that a is a strange place. We're very task-focused because we have targets to hit and to try and get people through our system and into places where they can seek ongoing help. And I think that that isn't necessarily an easy place to support each other 
in a very holistic way. But I think that because we're all very task focused, we're able to support each other in a very task focused way and get through the working day, but without necessarily being able to properly chat and unpick any ongoing issues with each other um, because we're all very busy all the time when we're at work. So I think it's, it's, it's something which I think there's a, there's a sense of camaraderie and there's a sense of kind of team working for the betterment of the department, but I don't necessarily think it allows us as much space to really connect and support each other in ways other, other areas do. Yeah. And so with all these challenges in mind, is there a positive that's really coming through from, from your work or maybe how the patients have been? Is, is there a hope you're drawing from it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's early on in the crisis. There was certainly a lot more of an appreciation that was shown by the patients. And I think there was a lot more of a understanding that the health service isn't, isn't something that, can be, that should be squandered. It's something which is very precious. I think we're seeing a bit of a change now as the virus progresses and as our response to it progresses, that people are starting to take less ownership of their own health again, I think, and are a bit more likely to come in with the high expectations. But I think that that happens as, as people are in lockdown for such a long time. It's kind of expected that they would start to maybe lose lose a little bit of the of the positive community action that was associated with Clef Carers because we're all, I think, getting a little bit tired of lockdown. Um, mm. So I kind of understand that. But I think over the course of it, there has been so much wonderful support from everybody. You know, I've, I've had people stop me in the street and, and be really supportive if I've been wearing anything even remotely associated with the NHS. Um, I've got into con- contact with so many people around my local community who know we work as NHS nurses who've, who've given us presents and have been really, really, you know, positive and happy to talk to us about how much they appreciate NHS, which is really nice to see. It, I, I really hope that kind of positivity continues moving forwards. And I think it would be really nice to see if that positivity, if we're able to harness it and move forwards to try and improve the NHS in the next few years to hopefully deal with the next pandemic, because there will be, there will unfortunately be others after this. So I hope we learn. Yeah, for sure. Last question then, in terms of the limitations that PPE can put on communication, you are more covered up in your role than ever before. How are you managing to still connect with the patients and support them beyond just, you know, the purely scientific level? That is a very, very good question. I think it depends. So we use quite different levels of PPE depending on what area we're in. So we have, I kind of talked about that we we split our department into multiple areas and they're they're color-coded to mean whether or not somebody is likely to have COVID-19, definitely has COVID-19, or is unlikely to have COVID-19, essentially. And in our very serious room in A&E called the resuscitation suite, the one in the yellow area, so people who are likely to have COVID-19, we have the full PPE. So we wear visors, we wear very tight-fitting FFP3 masks, and we wear quite a lot of kind of baggy gowns. Restricts our movement, but also it's very difficult to understand what people are saying, and there's almost it kind of restricts your body language and your facial expressions quite substantially. Now, the people inside that room are almost universally quite unwell. So our communication with those people is minimal at the best of times because they're quite focused on how unwell they feel and we're quite focused on being very test-specific. But also people sometimes, when they come in acutely unwell with COVID-19, they sometimes are quite confused. And we also have a lot of people who, especially earlier on in the crisis, were coming in from care homes potentially with quite complex cognitive issues which meant actually you'd really want to be them to be able to see your face so you can communicate as best as possible with someone who's quite confused but obviously that's not really a possibility so for most people it's it's just shouting over the noise of the area but for those people i think it's quite difficult to get any kind of compassionate caring communication through to them because if you're already confused you don't want to see somebody who looks quite alien to you coming and stabbing you with needles and that's that's a very difficult thing to don't think there's an easy way of initiating conversation in a caring way with all that stuff on whereas other areas we're using just a mask really and just apron and gloves so it's much easier to just take time to slowly speak to some to people and make sure they understand you fully and i I think a lot of us have have practiced doing eye smiles which are just smiling just with your eyes so that people understand that what you're saying is meant is a kind thing which is very difficult to do when you've got a mask on is quite difficult to, to smile with just your eyes, but I've been practicing in the mirror, so hopefully it's getting oh, close. That's <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Grand. All right, so we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much. No worries whatsoever. Hopefully you get 
get something which is useful for this wonderful show. I've been listening to a few episodes, and it seems like you guys are doing a really good job. I think, especially destigmatizing mental health for healthcare workers, for one, but also young men, is super important to me, and it's something which I've been meaning to write about at length for quite a while. So yeah, keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. I mean, that sounds like another collaboration right there. Yeah, for sure. I've written about mental health in young men quite a few times, but it's always felt like it's been as a part of a story as opposed to the focus of it. So I'd like to write something which is very acutely about mental health. Brilliant. And thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. NHS. He's still somehow one of the most efficient health systems in the world, the jewel in our crown. But all trophies atrophy and your eyes look tired. You're not sleeping quite as well as you used to. At 27, I've seen too many people die. But you've seen so many live to transcend sickness. Your walls have weaved so many stories. And there's still a glint in your eyes, I can see it. And your heart still beats multicultural and myogenic in its magnificence. But we're scared of the imagery. The wartime reporting propaganda already painting our leaders as legends, unashamedly shifting the blame and aiming to normalize the dead. They're not keeping count or saying our names aloud, but we died doing something we loved, so they can applaud. Before avoiding tough questions about how many are gone. But we appreciate the public, we really, really do. Our love is driven by their incredibly kind words in our times of darkness, but love, unsupported, can only go so far. All the free stuff fails without funding. All the applause is empty without proper protection from the virus that is ravaging our ranks. We may be brave, but underpaid. Overworked, so disengaged, disrespected, disempowered and vilified with our defiance devoured, and they'd have the gall to tell us not to make this political. NHS, all of this is political. Your arms are refuge. The taxes they took should be your lifeblood, but you're anemic, hypovolemic. And though these Brexit and COVID wounds may heal, we'd never survive losing you. And I'm tired. My skin worn raw from the mass I'm lucky to even have. I've been spat on and shouted at, and I don't feel brave. My sanity is saved when I can see your faces. And my sanity is saved when I see your faces. NHS, your staff are beautiful. Their masks off and their smiles sparkling in the sun. So this is a love poem to you, to us, NHS. All this bursting, fizzing, caring love. Quiet, hand-holding love, studious, dedicated, time-consuming, all-consuming love. And love is for the brave. And I know we too can transcend this sickness. Thank you so much to the No Really I'm Fine team for having us, and to you for listening. You can find more episodes or join our campaign for mental health education at mentalpodcast.co.uk.